This week's episode is about the persecution of Christians and includes some details that may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you pay attention to the news, you probably know that the Middle East is by no means the only place on earth where it's difficult to be a Christian. In many countries in the world, religious persecution is sanctioned and carried out by the government. Some countries, like China and North Korea, are officially atheist, and thus will persecute any religious believer whose loyalty is to a higher power than the communist state. In contrast, some countries are confessional states, meaning they have an official religion. Nearly six dozen countries worldwide have laws against blasphemy and apostasy, meaning that it's not only illegal to change your religion, but also that you can be prosecuted or even executed if the government determines that you did something that offended God. But of course, many countries around the world don't have laws specifically demonizing or restricting certain faiths. Many countries have, as does the United States, a provision for freedom of religion written into their laws. But if the religious conflict is primarily between citizens and not between citizens and the state, then simply having a religious freedom law on the books isn't enough. Consider India, where Christians have in recent years been lynched by mobs of angry Hindus, most of the time for disrespecting cows. Today, we bring you to another nation where this is happening, a nation in many ways divided between two faiths, where the government has, by most accounts, been unable or unwilling to stop the persecution of its Christians. Christians are being exterminated day in, day out. It is systemic. Honestly, it's almost impossible to offer a comprehensive list of all the acts of violence that have happened against Christians in Nigeria in the past few years. It happens there all the time. In July, in the city of Kukundaji, Gunmen killed at least 18 people and injured more than 30 others at a Christian wedding party. Just last month, nearly two dozen truckloads of Islamic militants attacked the town of Kukawa in northeastern Nigeria, overrunning the town and taking hundreds of people hostage. The bishops of Nigeria announced a 40-day period of prayer for an end to the persecution, which they have often described as a genocide. The 40 days ends this week, September 30th. Here at CNA, we cover the persecution of Christians in Africa all the time. And I think it can be easy for journalists as well as for readers when reports like this roll in day after day to simply become numb to it. But for Nigeria's Christians, becoming numb simply isn't an option. It's their reality, and they live it every day. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. Today on the podcast, we want to bring you the voices of just a few of Africa's many Christians who are practicing their faith despite a daily fear of kidnapping, injury, displacement, and even death. To conclude our three-episode series on Christian persecution, we bring you to Africa's most populous nation, Nigeria. Stay with us. To be a Christian in Nigeria poses a lot of challenges. This is Sister Teresa Tonko. 
She's a member of the Society of the Holy Child Jesus, a religious order whose main charism is the education of girls. If you've been paying attention to what's been going on in Nigeria the past several years, you know that young girls in this part of Africa face many challenges. Uh, we had these incidences whereby over 250 girls from Chibok were kidnapped and killed by Boko Haram because they were Christians. That happened in 2014. The terrorist group Boko Haram is affiliated with the Islamic State and, to date, has displaced more than 2 million people from their homes. The name Boko Haram roughly translates to Western education is forbidden. They use violence to impose their strict interpretation of Islam. The surrounding cities around Maiduguri, you still find Boko Haram very active. This is Father Joseph Bature. He's a priest in the city of Maiduguri, which is one of the most dangerous cities for Christians in the entire country. In fact, Maiduguri is where Boko Haram first emerged. It began as a Muslim sect, and its leader, Muhammad Yusuf, would attract Muslims from across Africa to listen to his bombastic preaching. By 2009, it became quite violent when they took up arms against the state and against Christians, whom they believed were always a, a threat to them and allies of the West and infidels worthy to be killed. Religious demographics in Nigeria vary pretty widely, but for the most part, the northern part of the country is Muslim and the south is mostly Christian. The boundary where these two demographics meet has been the site of the worst of the violence. They still do the kidnapping, they still do the bombing, they still set mines on the road. Every morning the military has to do some sweeping, they have to clear the road, take off mines, landmines that they have planted overnight, and uh, sometimes it explodes with people. He estimates that since 2009, Boko Haram has driven out about half of the 300,000 Catholics who used to live in the diocese. Conditions for Christians are also pretty bad in the state of Kaduna, located in the country's northwest. There, the persecution of Christians by their Muslim neighbors is by no means a recent phenomenon. There have been well-documented massacres against Christians taking place in 1987, 1991, 92, and in 2000. Christian girls are kidnapped by Muslims and forcefully married. Just in recent times, that is just last month, there was this systemic killing from one village to the other. About four, four, four villages were attacked, and these are all Christian villages in southern Kaduna, whereby over 62 Christians were killed. Many of the attacks have been carried out by the Fulanis, a Muslim ethnic group that are primarily nomadic herders. Initially, they, they didn't pose any threats to the people. They weren't posing any threat to the people. They were very calm, gentle people. This is Father Ben Achi, communications director for the Enugu Diocese. They were very calm, gentle people, always moving around with their cattle. But later on, with the passage of time, we noticed that uh, some of them are becoming so violent. Incumbent President Mohamedou Bahari took office in 2015. He himself is of Fulani ancestry, and many Christians believe that this may explain why he's not been tougher on the Fulani's abuses against the Christians. So he seems to have some sort of a soft spot for, for, his, for his kinsmen, and um, has not really been uh, very decisive in dealing with the, with the situation, unfortunately. The kidnappers, suspected to be Fulani, his men, 
Here's another voice, Father Charles Uganwa from the Isili Uku Diocese. I should mention that when I spoke to Father Charles, one of the priests in his diocese had been kidnapped and released just a few weeks earlier. And he was released after about four days. He was gruesomely injured. He was injured. He was beaten. He was beaten with clubs and uh, with stones. With the put of their gun, the, the legs were broken. He was seriously injured. He had to be in the hospital for many weeks. Kidnapping is a huge problem in Nigeria, especially for clergy. At least six priests of the diocese have been kidnapped just in the past two years. Priests are vulnerable to kidnapping for several reasons. They're often a visible and well-known member of a community, and parishioners are likely to be willing to pay to get him back. Priests often don't carry weapons, and are often found in predictable places, such as their rectory or in the church. In addition to the persecution, Father Charles said some of the kidnappings are simply about economics. There is gross unemployment in Nigeria, so the youths are not occupied, making so much money on kidnapping. So for them, it's a better deal. They could do that. It's easier to kidnap priests and uh, give him little torture, and money will come out of it. Last year, the Nigerian Bishops' Conference announced that no ransom should be paid if priests are kidnapped, but this is rarely followed. Oftentimes, well-meaning parishioners will gather the money to pay for the priest's release. What's needed, Father Charles says, is better security and protection for priests, perhaps even to the point of weapons and training. Father Ben from the Inugu Diocese also had a kidnapping story that hit close to home. Just not long ago, just about two weeks ago, one of the priests in my neighboring diocese, a diocese very close to mine, in Soka Diocese, um, a priest was uh, was kidnapped. One of our priests and a, a friend of mine uh, was kidnapped and uh, he was uh, with the kidnappers uh, for about four days and was released after some ransom was paid. Kept him there in the bush, tying his hands and legs and um, threatening to kill him every minute if they don't bring uh, if the, if the people don't bring the amount of money they, they had requested. So he, he kept praying every minute you know, because he thought it was going to be his last. We thank God he, he, he made it, he made it uh, back home alive because sometimes uh, some people are not usually that lucky. You know, we lost two priests last year. We're happy that this one came back alive. Given the daily threats against Christians, I asked Father Bature if they have ever had to be secretive about practicing their faith in order to avoid making themselves targets of Boko Haram. We celebrate masses openly. We have to tell ourselves and our people that it is high time we stood out and stand for the faith. That we cannot keep hiding. We cannot keep canceling masses. We need to go back to the churches. We need to celebrate. We need to pray together. Of course, they take all the security measures they can when they celebrate mass. But oftentimes, they don't have the resources to fully protect themselves. And the police can't or don't always help. We normally have some security men around the entrances. We still ask people not to come in with vehicles. We still search people to avoid some suicide bomber sneaking into the church. But we still celebrate masses publicly, and people come for masses. As we mentioned, Sister Teresa works mainly with children, particularly young girls. She's seen firsthand the difficulties that children in this region face, who are forced to leave their homes 
and may themselves suffer injuries or even death at the hands of the Fulanis. There is so much fear. These children, lots of them have a lot of fear, and some of them are in the camps, you know, because their parents have, have either been killed, the parents have had, particularly the mothers, have had to take refuge with them to the internally displaced camps. So you can imagine a child growing up, you know, witnessing this gruesome uh, killing that goes on, as well as growing up in a, an internally di- displaced camp. Even though some Christians from the north have been able to seek refuge in the south or other parts of the country, it's not a sustainable solution. A lot of the Christians have left this part to go into the other parts of the country to establish their businesses or take up residence. While some are internally displaced, that is to say they are indigents of this area, but they cannot return to their villages, and so they live in camps. Lots of challenges as far as uh, material needs are concerned, you know, psychological needs are concerned. There are lots of challenges, a lot of deprivations. You know, you had everything all of a sudden, you know, you are left with nothing. Lots of challenges and then you are exposed to danger, you know. You are living in a place where, you know, it's not safe. Anything can happen. People are constantly dying in hundreds. Unfortunately, not so much is spoken about it. So. The international community can put pressure on our government. They can assist in trying to see that a lot of other things are done. For instance, stopping the flow, inflow of arms, checking to see where these terrorists are getting their funding, supplying intelligence and, and tactics to assist our own military. That is what the international community can do. Persecution of Christians in Nigeria is an undeniable fact, and it is systemic. My appeal, again, is for the Christians out there to pray for the people of Nigeria, to pray for the safety of Christians in Nigeria. That's that's the message I have. You know, we need prayers. We need that sense of solidarity, that sense of prayer, that communion that can encourage our people to live their faith with dignity and know that they are not suffering in vain. Because we all live in fears, fears of COVID-19, fear of kidnappers, fear of armed robbers, and also we try to pray that God will lift us from the present poverty. Our people here are suffering because of their faith, but at the same time, I see they are suffering as a symbol of hope, that Christian perseverance to witness to the beauty of the Christian faith. We are people of faith. We we have to keep hope alive no matter what the situation is. That's what our, our faith teaches us. We will never give up our faith. We'll be right back after this. Hi, everyone. This is Father John Paul Mary, the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word. I'm the chaplain for EWTN employees. You may remember me from episode 18, The Pirate Nun. If you enjoyed listening to CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk as much as I do, and I have to say it's the highlight of my week, you can subscribe to both of these shows and get them delivered straight to your phone as soon as they're posted. Just search on your favorite podcast app for CNA Newsroom, tap the subscribe button, and then do the same for CNA Editor's Desk. Both shows are available on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. And may the blessing of Almighty God be upon you this day, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now back to the episode. There have sadly been thousands of Christians killed in just the past few years in Nigeria. But we want to bring you the story of one young Catholic in particular 
whose story captured the world's attention earlier this year. Here's one of CNA's African colleagues, Jude Atemanke, who filed this report from Nairobi, Kenya. Michael Nadi was born in 2001 in the northwestern corner of Nigeria. He and his twin brother Richard were raised by their grandmother after the death of their mother six years ago, which left the boys orphaned. Michael wanted to become a priest, so in 2018 he applied and was accepted as a seminarian for the Sokoto Diocese. In October 2019, he entered the Good Shepherd Seminary, a large school in Sokoto, where 270 men live and study for the priesthood. Michael was a musician who played the keyboard as his fellow seminarians sang Praising God. He was excited to become a priest. His brothers said he was always eager to share the faith and it was not surprising that he chose to enter the seminary. He wanted to make his grandmother proud. But in the late evening of January 8, 2020, several armed men broke through the fence surrounding the seminarians' living quarters. The men were disguised in military camouflage and began firing their weapons. They stole several laptops and phones and then they grabbed four young men and took them away. Their names were Pius, Peter, Stephen and Michael. This was not the first kidnapping to take place in this area. Last October, kidnappers took schoolgirls and staff from a boarding school located nearby but later released them. Kidnapping for ransom is common throughout Nigeria and this case was no exception. The kidnappers reportedly contacted the families of all four seminarians to negotiate a price for their release. It is not known precisely whether the kidnappers were actually paid a ransom, but regardless, after 10 days, the kidnappers released the first of the four seminarians. They dumped him by the side of the highway and passers-by helped him to safety. He had been badly beaten and was taken quickly to hospital. Nearly two more weeks passed. Catholics prayed fervently that the other three seminarians would be released safely too. On January 31, the seminary announced that two of the remaining seminarians had finally been released. That left only one remaining, Michael. The prayers intensified. The church called for prayer and fasting. Perhaps at last, Michael would come home too. But Michael never came home alive. On February 1st, Bishop Matthew Hassan Kuka broke the news with a heavy heart. Michael had been found dead. He was 18 years old. The exact details of how Michael died and the date on which it happened are still not known. He was killed alongside another prisoner, the wife of a local doctor. For days after Michael's capture, his family and Bishop Matthew had held out hope that he was still alive. Eventually, the seminary rector identified Michael's body at a morgue 
in Sokoto. Very painful to have um, lost one of my seminarians. But um, given my faith, I believe that he is in the hands of God. But here perhaps is the most remarkable detail that we have been able to learn about Michael's death. According to one of his kidnappers, Michael was not afraid to proclaim his faith to them and would not stop telling the kidnappers that they needed to repent of their evil ways. Michael proclaimed the gospel until the very end, something his Muslim captors could not accept. It was apparently for this reason that they killed him. Michael Nadi in February, Bishop Matthew decried the insecurity and violence that has taken place under Nigeria's president, Muhammadu Buhari, and expressed the hope that Michael's death would become a turning point for Christian persecution in Africa's most populous nation. He said he hopes Michael's example and his martyrdom would inspire an army of young people to follow his footsteps. Bishop Matthew said, I quote, we will march on with the cross of Christ entrusted to us, not in agony or pain, but because our salvation lies in your cross. We have no vengeance or bitterness in our hearts. We have no drop of sorrow inside us. We are honored that our son has been summoned to receive the crown of martyrdom at the infancy of his journey to the priesthood. May the Lord place him beside his bosom and may he intercede for us. If his blood can bring healing to our nation, then his murderers will never have the final say. May God give him eternal peace. By April, it was reported that the Nigerian police force had arrested the killers. It was then that the leader of the gang of Muslim kidnappers gave a telephone interview to a Nigerian newspaper telling about how Michael proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ while in captivity. Many of the country's bishops and priests have echoed what Bishop Matthew had said, that Michael's death points to a failure of the state to protect its Christians. Very, very sad day. As we bury this young man, very in his, the prime of his own age, taken out of a dormitory, you know, uh, and uh, brutally murdered. And, uh, and I think it's, it's, it says volumes about the state of our nation. Michael's death was reported widely around the entire world. On the date of Michael's burial, at least 5,000 people around the world lit candles in his memory. Many Catholics praise Michael as a martyr because he never gave up his faith, even in the face of death. Michael was by no means the first to be killed for his faith in Nigeria, but many in the country hope that his brave and faithful witness will strengthen the resolve of the country's persecuted Christians. For CNN Newsroom, I'm Judah Temanke, ACI Africa, Nairobi.
For our final segment, we want to end on a slightly lighter note and bring you to an area of Nigeria that can perhaps serve as a model for the rest of the country in terms of the relationship between Christians and Muslims. My diocese actually is one of the centers that are used as an example of good, peaceful coexistence among religions in Nigeria and has, has often been uh, noted as well by the Vatican as an example of what uh, peaceful coexistence should be like. This is Bishop Emmanuel Badejo, who leads the Diocese of Oyo, located in the country's southwest. Bishop Badejo is a really nice guy, and by the way, he's a good singer and musician too. In this part of the country, Christians are very much the minority. Uh, maybe like 2%, less than 2% actually. Muslims are a huge population. You might think that such a large Muslim majority would marginalize or oppress the region's Christians. But Bishop Adejo says this largely isn't the case. During their festivals and hours, we get, you know, exchange mutual uh, uh, greetings and goodwill messages and even gifts. I'm glad to say that uh, when marriages, marriages occur across the board, Muslims to Christians, Christians to Muslims, and uh, people feel really free and comfortable participating in such ceremonies. This is the somewhat bizarre reality in Nigeria. The worst persecution against Christians actually takes place in areas where Christians make up the majority. In those areas, small groups of Muslim extremists, often hiding in the dense forests and jungles, terrorize the Christians by kidnapping them and holding them for ransom. The existence of terrorism uh, in those parts puts Christians at a huge disadvantage. Again, in the area where his diocese is, in the southwest, Bishop Adejo said many of the Muslim leaders are open to dialogue with Christians and are happy to make peace. We must realize that not all Muslims are such violent and bloodshedding killers. Muslims should first of all think about the common humanity that we enjoy under God and that there can be no peace or development without that kind of sensitivity to harmony and peaceful coexistence. And that's exactly what we preach as Christians as well. This certainly doesn't mean everything is roses for the Christians. We must point out that there are some uh, means of persecution that are not so aggressive, but rather subtle. This includes things like political appointments and licensing standards for places of worship that favor mosques over Christian churches. The government has allocated funds for orphaned Muslim children to go to school, which of course is a laudable goal, but for the most part, Christian children have not been afforded the same opportunities. Bishop Badejo noted that the Constitution of Nigeria guarantees freedom of religion, but in practice, this isn't enforced in many areas. The most important issue is that unfortunately, the government in Nigeria does not show enough will, either in speech or in action, to help to curb the violence and the bloodshed that we see. In these areas, the Catholic Church is a vital source of stability and charity. The Church, absolutely, is a pillar of strength for all the people of the uh, Catholic Church. And there are other churches too, because in the uh, when the terrorism, the, the spate of terrorism in the Northeast was at its highest, uh, quite a number of the civil society organizations packed and left because it became so terrible. But the churches remained. The Catholic Church remained and actually had 
separate refugee camps for people who didn't feel safe or comfortable in the general government refugee camps, either because they were denied access to benefits, to food. He said anything that the international community can do to encourage the Nigerian government to treat all believers equally would go a long way toward peace in the country. Whatever can be done to help the government to respect the rights of each individual and to respect the rule of law, that will make Nigeria a much better place and a much more peaceful place. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host this time, Jonah McKeown, and our regular host is CNA Editor-in-Chief J.D. Flynn. Special thanks to all the people who agreed to be interviewed for this program. Audio clips came from TVC News, A to the Church in Need, the YouTube channel Catholic Treasures, and from Bishop Badejo. Also special thanks to Father Don Bosco Onyala, Editor-in-Chief of ACI Africa which is Catholic News Agency's newest sister agency based in Nairobi. For more news about Africa from a Catholic perspective, please visit aciafrica.org. Oh, and one more thing. Our executive producer, Kate Oliveira, had a baby recently, and so naturally she's taking some time off. This means we're temporarily adjusting CNA Newsroom's publication schedule. So for the next couple weeks, we're going to be releasing a new episode of CNA Newsroom every other week. We'll get back to our weekly schedule once Kate is back. Please continue to pray for persecuted Christians. Next time on CNA Newsroom. None of us, my parents even, none of us imagined that any of us would become priests. For whatever reason, God chose to call us. I always kind of saw discernment as this problem to be figured out. This is all just a part of the story that God's writing. Subscribe and listen to CNA Newsroom wherever you get your podcasts.